You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, I'm really thrilled to have my friend Toby Doherty from Hayes, Kansas. Toby is, in terms of Strong Towns, one of the pioneers out there uh, trying to take this stuff and as a city manager in Hayes, make something happen. And we thought it would be great to check in with Toby and see how things are going. Toby Doherty, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's really nice to chat with you. The last time we talked, we kind of gave people an overview of how you came to be introduced to Strong Towns and then what happened immediately after that. I kind of would like to get an update. You're in the trenches. You're having to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. You put together some pretty hard-hitting stuff. How has that been received and and how are things going? Well, it's been received well. Sometimes progress has to be measured in in small increments, but I, I would say overall we're we're making progress there. When we talked last time, I gave a more in depth accounting of of you know my my discovery of strong towns and and it was in the middle of me discovering some some unsustainable trends here, and you know strong towns sort of drew out a perspective, an attitude, a way of looking at things that that had kind of been missing before. It coincided with a, a staff retreat that we held where instead of taking the traditional staff retreat where, you know, I take my executive staff out of town and, and, and we do the typical the typical things, we did a, a, a full-scale fiscal investigation of the city of Hayes. We looked at everything from big-picture revenues and expenditures to the micro level. What is the expected depreciation and maintenance cost for an 8-inch water line versus a 10-inch water line versus a 10-inch sewer line versus a a 28-foot asphalt street versus a 35-foot concrete street? We got really deep into the weeds. And in short, we we came back with some uh, what what I would call some some paradigm-shifting results. We pointed out to to the governing body um, and to the public that we only really had one type of sustainable development, and that is retail development. Uh, a little bit about our funding structure. Hayes is a kind of an isolated city of a little over 20,000 on the high plains in western Kansas. We have a major medical center, uh, Fort Hayes State University. We're a retail shopping center for approximately 80,000 people. And so Ellis County, where we're located, has the, the second highest retail pull factor in the state. So pulling people from outside the county in, uh, we, we rely very heavily on sales taxes here. We're the only city that doesn't levy a property tax for the general fund, uh, police, fire, parks, things like that. Um, that is funded via predominantly sales taxes. So we look at things a little bit differently here. Uh, a lot of our growth had been happening on the residential side. And with residential growth, comes the need for, you know, additional fire stations, more parks, more parks workers, more police, more general fund type endeavors. So what we were able to demonstrate is that uh, we had a segment of growth that was generating cost, but not generating the revenues to cover that cost. That was covered by a different sector. Um, We also did a pretty good um, investigation on not only 
why our system of streets was underfunded, but how we got to the point where our system of streets was underfunded. Um, we, we went back and looked through the, the, the history of Hayes and how we built streets and where we built streets and, and who paid for them and, and, and where the outside dollars come from. And, and so we were able to demonstrate how we got to a point where our entire system of streets did not have enough dedicated revenue to pay for those streets. And so we rolled this out to the commission in June of last year. What we were presenting sort of went against the grain of, of prevailing thought. You know, most people, you know, you drive by a new housing development or a new growth area and you automatically, you have a, a positive vibe, uh, especially on the high plains in western Kansas, where as a whole, we're depopulating. Uh, so you see this growth and you automatically think good. And what we were doing is saying that's actually a liability. Uh, that's costing us money. Uh, that's creating costs that we don't have revenues to cover. And so because we were sort of going against the grain, we didn't make, and I didn't make any policy recommendations at the time. I wanted to lay out the facts as they existed. I wanted to lay out the issues that we're going to have to deal with. And then the only thing I advocated was to determine, uh, you know, hey, let's have a discussion. Let's determine the best way to move forward. Let's talk about this. We wanted to evaluate sort of what kind of got traction, what didn't, what the reactions were, and initially it was it was received very well. We we presented to the to the governing body, the Hayes City Commission. We presented to the Planning Commission. The, the City Commission asked that we sort of take this on the road, um, and we talked to civics groups. You know, the Rotary, the Kiwanis, the Chamber Lunch. You know, the the Hayes Area Young Professionals groups like that. It was well received by those groups. Great questions, in-depth understandings. We we tried to simplify things to people that aren't in city government. I, I think that the document Rachel shared online was one of the things that we created for this sort of traveling traveling show. And I'm going to admit, Chuck, we we stole it from you. The idea oh, no. from you. Um, <laughs> You know, the curbside chat. Um, I, I read the curbside chat. That was my first introduction to Strong Towns, and it was like a slap in the face. But the curbside chat is written to a certain level. I had to, to get it uh, more uh, readable by the masses, more understandable by the masses. So that's what uh, that's how we came about with this. The groups we presented to, they got it. Um, they understood it because we tied it into personal finances. We we, we we tied it into to hard facts and figures. Uh, we didn't present any. We didn't present a problem, and then this way out policy solution that's going to we know is going to be difficult. So we wanted to get everybody on board that there is an issue we're going to have to address. The only initial grumbling we received was what was expected from people that kind of make their living off of growth. Those that were scared that we were going to go into this anti-growth mode, and and so that was only the initial the initial grumbling. As city staff, you know, we, we tried to live the strong town's life. We're still trying it. But we use strong towns as a noun, as a verb, as an adjective, you know, as, as a new approach, a way of challenging our beliefs, a critical analysis based on an acute understanding of our finances. So let's, let's, let's take all of our past assumptions and beliefs and set them aside and let's start over. During this discussions, we, as staff, we sort of pointed down a lot of paths. And there's, you know, if you're faced with a situation where you're doing something that's unsustainable, there's some logical reactions and some reality-based reactions. And so one obvious logical reaction is if we're doing something unsustainable, we raise taxes and then maintain the current lifestyle. Well, that's going nowhere. We, we as a whole, as a nation, we're in a you know, we're in an anti-tax sentiment, and, and it's even reflected locally here. I get it. I'm not going to recommend that. 
one logical reaction is no growth. Uh, let's just put a moratorium on growth until we figure this out. Well, that's going to be pretty hard to do in an area where growth is a source of pride. And as I mentioned, we are in a little island of growth in an area that's depopulating. So the last thing we want to do is to, to portray that mindset of, of anti-growth. We talked about a lot of, of tactical-type decisions. You know, we, we, we revamp our development policies, and we put in density standards and mixed-use requirements, and we target incentives towards infill and all this stuff that you sort of weaves together. And we, we had discussions here and there, but, but just nothing got just a lot of traction. We are in the position to where we, where we are that anomaly from a lot of cities that, that don't have the sales tax. And and there's a another strategy that it seems like we're probably going to pursue. And in addition to the the thousand little tactical and 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 strategic changes we're going to make, I would say bolstered revenue is probably going to be the the most likely path. The governing body and I think the the, the powers that be, they don't want the mindset out there that that housing is a liability, that residential growth is a liability. It, it's more of a, a necessary amenity, sort of like a park, sort of like a, an aquatic park, a sports complex, something like that. Um, it's a quality of life amenity, and, and parks don't pay for themselves. Flowers and the medians don't pay for themselves. It's an amenity. You hope you generate enough wealth to actually pay for these things. And, and, and I think that's how we're going to be viewing residential development. At the tactical level, we're going to try to pay attention to cost you know, and, and, and make good decisions. But at the at the big strategic level, we're going to try to make sure we have adequate revenues coming in on our retail side to pay for the for the residential cost. So I, I think that's where we're heading. The city commission actually just last night at their meeting made some changes to the economic development policy uh, to make it a little more user friendly for retail applicants. Like a lot of cities, our economic development policy was drafted when you know the idea of economic development was you know you go build a spec building and you try to get a company of 300 people to move here. The adding a little more of the of the retail stuff is, is beneficial to us. There have been a ton of positive outcomes um, as a result of us talking strong towns, mostly at the staff level. It, it it's a slow process, but we're changing the way we evaluate things at the staff level. We're asking questions we didn't ask before. We're challenging past beliefs and assumptions. And and that's something that we have to keep our finger on the pulse of this. We have to keep doing it. The commission is now asking a tough question. They're asking what's the fiscal note for this endeavor, which they wouldn't have asked about two years ago. They are, are understanding there's more of an emphasis on maintaining what we have rather than adding new. Uh, the city commission... In conjunction with the, the Strong Towns discussion, we are in the midst of a, a $30 million project to rebuild our wastewater treatment facility. And and so there was a necessary rate increase to pay for the, the debt that's coming um, with the rebuild of this facility. We pointed out that we do not have adequate capital revenues coming in to pay for the the, the annualized maintenance, expected maintenance of our water and sewer system. We had never actually done the math to determine what our annualized maintenance was for the water and sewer system. We'd never done the on-the-ground investigation, meaning cameras in the sewer lines and prioritizations of, of water lines to determine how much we should be spending, what's a five-year plan, what's a 10-year plan. And so once we got all that data, we went to the commission and presented it, and they made the tough decisions to not only raise wastewater rates to cover the, the, the wastewater treatment facility, but to cover the, 
the annualized cost of, of, of the capital maintenance. And they raise water rates to put the capital rate in place that we needed. So we actually have, we can actually maintain our stuff. And new development pays its way. So every time you add a user, they're paying the capital rate, which means it, it pays its way. As the year progressed at the, the strategic level, we gave a lot of feedback based on the Strong Towns approach. But the Strong Towns approach sort of ties in with our, our comprehensive plan, which was adopted in 2012 has a set of guiding principles with it. And 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 if you look at the strong towns as a as a philosophy, it sort of ties in with with what our guiding principles are in our comprehensive plan. So just a couple small examples, Chuck. We had an area platted right next to the country club um as garden homes. And this was the private private little streets, not built to streets, uh city street standards, very small lots. I I forget the amount of of, of eventual full build-out, how many homes would be on this parcel. It was a great example of infill development, lower-maintenance-type homes without vast expanse of yards and things like that because it's next to a country club. They don't need a, a giant yard. The developer gets about halfway through it, and there is a market here for large lots. And and so what he came in and asked for a replat, uh, or the developer came in and asked for a replat, and he wanted the replat essentially and take eight lots and turn them into two lots. And so from the city staff, we looked at the comprehensive plan. We we used the Strong Towns approach, and we made the recommendation to deny based on what the comprehensive plan said and, and at Strong Towns. And we, we were taking something that could have eight homes, and we're putting two homes on it now. The city commission voted to do it, and that's their prerogative. Uh, you know, they voted to do it. We gave developers feedback about um, uh, potential developments regarding the, the, the expected liabilities of arterials and parks and fire stations and, 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 and maybe in a manner that we wouldn't have done it in the past, uh, maybe a little more dollars and cents manner than we would have done in the past. Uh, we've had some issues in the three-mile area outside of the city. Uh, there's, there's a lot of little issues that we've, we've given some feedback that's a little bit different than we've given in the past, not so much in an enabling standpoint, but more in a, a, a challenging who's going to pay for what type standpoint. And so a few that were initially, yeah, Strong Towns was great. At the micro level, they became a little less supportive, <laughs> a little questioning. Right. And so from my standpoint, several months ago, I kind of quit using the phrase Strong Towns because what I didn't want is Strong Towns to become a metaphor for all things negative. I didn't want it to be equated to austerity in Greece. You know, it can't be that. Uh, strong towns has to be a positive. And, and yes, there may be tough decisions that have to be made, but it, the overall outcome needs to be positive. And, and my fear was we were going to create an atmosphere here where strong towns was was the bad parent and what we used to be was the good parent. <laughs> right. And right. so I just kind of quit using strong towns for a while. And and we we still lived it. We we still did everything the way we were doing it. We just didn't refer to strong towns, and that you may not want to hear that. But, no, no, I, it, I think that's fascinating, actually. It, well, it's you know, in the process, I learned a lot about cities and 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 the factors that shape policies and outcomes, and and this is the best analogy I can come up with. So forgive me if if, if you think it's it's bogus, but um, in the world of physics, there is Newtonian physics and quantum physics. And the laws that govern each are different. 
So Newtonian physics breaks down at the quantum level, and quantum physics can't be applied applied to things like gravity. Well, it's it's a lot like that in government, and I don't care if it's if it's city government, if it's state government, if it's federal government. It's it's easy to get on board with big broad ideas and concepts, big broad plans. It's a lot harder to make decisions that are in line with that big picture. So at the federal level, the government needs to cut spending. That could be from a conservative legislator, a a, a liberal legislator, a, a resident, a citizen. But don't try to shut down the military base next to my city, because I'll find a hundred reasons why you can't do that. And so you fight that battle at every turn. So what it means is, is sometimes, even though you have the best intentions, you will take actions as a community that are counter to the broad, big-picture goals. We're tired of the cost imposed for arterials because of development. So the the big picture is, well, we'll just make developers pay for arterials. Yeah, let's make them pay for arterials. But then when it comes time to do the development beside that arterial right there, they'll find a hundred good reasons why we don't want to make that developer pay for that arterial. Um, how it's unfair is placing a financial burden. And and there's there's a, a thousand examples. We could have an economic development policy with outcome-based goals, but it could break down at the utilization level because a few people in town may not like who's applying for the economic incentives, and that they'll find a lot of reasons why they shouldn't give the economic incentives. I'll, I'll give you an example that we're dealing with right now. We just replaced a restroom, and actually we just added a restroom in Kiwanis Park, and we have a group that wants to put a pavilion downtown um, in the railroad corridor that has a restroom with it. We need a restroom downtown. From a sustainability standpoint, logic says if you can't take care of everything you have right now and you're worried about sustainability, don't add to the burden. Okay, so that's a big-picture principle. That's, that's, a, that's a guiding principle. Don't add to the burden. But at the micro level, when the Kiwanis come along with a $25,000 check for a $50,000 bathroom, it's hard to turn them down. You take that check and you say, thank you very much. This is a, a need we have in this park. We'll do it. When somebody comes along, like with the pavilion project downtown, it says we will pay for a $70,000 restroom with somebody who donated the money. It's hard to turn that down, even though there's a maintenance burden and, and, and a, you know, a, an ownership assumption burden going, going down. So it's, it's it's easy to get on board with this big picture stuff. It's harder to deal with at the micro level. Businesses can set a course and stay on that course because they aren't they aren't beholden to residents and and other factors that that governments are citizens, legislators, staff, bureaucrats. <laughs> I'll throw us in the mix. And and you know so businesses can, can they can set a strategy and, and and walk that line where it's harder for cities to do that at times. One of the other things that we're dealing with here in Hayes is slow growth. We grow, but we grow very slowly. And it's it's extremely hard to manage slow growth. It's like trying to, to turn a bicycle when you're going one mile an hour. It's extremely hard to do. And so during our investigation, I posed the question, what does it cost to add an acre to the city of Hayes? A, a broad question. And we went through a lot of different calculations and 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 we come up with a number that I think I could probably defend in a court of law. $3,000 an acre. That was the number last year. It's probably higher this year. But for every acre we add, we could expect $3,000 in cost in general services. Now that's just general services. This doesn't take into account any any infrastructure for water, sewer, stormwater, any of the utilities. 
This is streets and fire and parks and police and administration and code enforcement and all of that. We're very confident at a number of, at the macro level. It's pretty easy to calculate that. It's impossible to ascribe it to a specific acre. You cannot do it. And so when you're dealing with slow growth, you're dealing with tipping points because you can add acre after acre after acre without needing to put a park in, without needing to add a fire station, without needing to add two more police officers. But when that tipping point is reached, you can't blame it on the last acre developed. When you have to build a $4 million fire station and add six new firefighters, it can't be the last acre develops fault. It's a tipping point that gets there, but when you're you're far enough ahead of that curve, that tipping point, you're trying to point to the costs that are coming. The 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 argument breaks down to the fact that well, I'm not I'm not imposing those costs right now, and so that's how come it's not just hey, that's how come a lot of cities can get into a situation where you know you 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 just do things in a small incremental manner that have an, an associated cost down the road, and that's it's it's again it's why slow growth is a little higher harder to, to manage. I study a lot of planning policies, especially policies that deal with how to assign costs. Um, you know, how do you assign costs for redevelopments of arterials and parks and fire stations and things like that? And, and kind of what I found is the, the the communities that are growing the fastest to me have the most appealing policies, and that includes redevelopment. You know, the ones that are either developing or redeveloping the fastest have the best policies because it's easier to make those decisions. It's easier to assign those costs when they're happening in the very near future. I've always thought, and I've experienced this as well, exactly as you describe it, that the the, the smaller places, the low growth and smaller in population just simply have like less margin for error. When those big costs come, they come all at once and they're overwhelming. And, you know, you get there the acre by acre, the block by block, but then all of a sudden you face this and it's, it's overwhelming. I, I want to get at this cultural issue because really what you're describing to me is a cultural issue that I have experienced in, in vivid, <laughs> vivid technicolor. I want to get to that by asking you to go back and talk a little bit about the, the road maintenance thing. You, you said that uh, you did it kind of a inventory in a sense and explained why the roadways are un- underfunded today, why you don't have enough money to maintain roads. Can you talk a little bit about what caused that, you know, how wide that chasm is? And then I've got some more questions for you that I, I think we'll get to this cultural issue. Well, let's talk about roads because to me, this is, this is fascinating. And I, I, you know, as a, as a manager, I always like to ask the question, how do we get here? What is the history of this? You know, I, I wake up one day and realize that we should be spending, based off the the age, condition, and makeup of our roads, we should be spending about $3 million a year and change on uh, maintenance and replacement. We have regular revenues for about $500,000. My, my question was how? How do we get to this point? How does it ever seem like this is a good idea? Well, it, 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 nobody ever made the decision in 1973 that we're just going to not pay attention to this stuff. So when you look at, at Hayes, Hayes was, Hayes was like most cities on the on the, on the Western Plains. It was it was incorporated um, in the 1800s. It was it was there was a fort here, Fort Hayes, um, as they were building the railroad, you know, and they were settling with the Homestead Act, um, and it grew very slowly. So when you look at Hayes from the late 1800s through the 1940s, um, it was very compact. We built brick streets. 
And, you know, a brick street is essentially two streets, and it lasts a long time. And a brick street can be rough, and people don't pay attention to it like they do an asphalt street that's rough. It's one of the reasons I love brick streets. But we built a lot of brick streets in the downtown area, and we grew very slowly. As we grew, you would build a subdivision. And then the subdivision would have gravel roads. And when the people got tired of the gravel roads, they would petition the city to be special assessed to pave the street. And then they would pay to pave the street. The community large didn't pay for it. They would pay the street. And and that's sort of how we grew. And because of the quality of materials we were using, even concrete back in like the 30s and 40s is a much higher quality of concrete street than the stuff we're building now. And so up until the 40s and 50s, it was just a matter of dense construction, dense building, and very high-quality streets that lasted a long time, so your annualized maintenance outlay is very low on those. Well, then we hit the 1950s, and, and 84% of our infrastructure has been built since 1950, and that includes stuff that's been rebuilt that's older in the downtown. Um, so 84% of our stuff's been built since 1950. In the 1950s, we experienced, like every other community, we go out. Now, in the 50s, we did build as concrete streets, but then in the 60s, we built off asphalt streets. And when streets are new, there's very little maintenance. So it wasn't until the 70s and 80s when I started going back and looking through city commission meeting minutes that we actually start seeing discussion on the fact that we have more maintenance projects than streets to take, than money to, to take care of those projects. And so we handle it with a, a, a few different approaches. The, the, the state used to collect uh, some property tax money and then redistribute that back to um, cities, city-county revenue sharing. They were collectively they're called the demand transfers. Um, so those monies were used, a lot of it, for streets. Uh, we had some, some gasoline taxes that aren't indexed to inflation. Uh, those were used for streets. Um, and we hit the bank of KDOT very hard. KDOT was very good at giving out 80-20 uh, loans for arterials. So if we had to reconstruct an arterial or build an arterial, we would we would use 80-20 KDOT loans, and we would bond that money. So that got us through the 80s and 90s. But meanwhile, we were we were doing a good job of reconstructing and building, but our maintenance on our residential stuff was just completely going downhill. So it was in the early 2000s when we reached the point the demand transfers went away. The state took those monies back to to fill their budget shortfall. We were reaching the point where we, we were a little uncomfortable with adding a bunch of money from a bonding standpoint, and yet we still had a lot of asphalt streets that were on the verge of, if you don't start taking care of them, you're going to lose them. And, and that's when it sort of all came to a head. That's when we switched the sales tax. Um, and one of the provisions of the sales tax was, you know, we're going to bring in more than we need to spend on the general fund side. We're going to take that excess money and spend it on streets. And so we went from spending essentially $100,000 a year on street maintenance to a million dollars a year on street maintenance. And we have attacked the streets that are asphalt. A concrete street, once it reaches a certain point, all you're going to do is rebuild it. Right. It but it's very apart. slow to deteriorate. Right. So we spent the bulk of our money on, on our residential asphalt streets. And, and we have been hitting that hard for probably about the last 10 to 11 years. We've been hitting that very hard to the point where our asphalt streets are in pretty good shape. We do have a lot of concrete streets that need to be rebuilt and some asphalt streets that need to be rebuilt. Meanwhile, the Bank of KDOT closed, uh, closed a couple years ago. We did our last 80-20 project and they said, don't come back. The bank's closed. We'll see you later. 
so that aspect is gone. Our governing body has a goal of keeping the mill levy at 25. They don't just want to add a bunch of projects that causes the mill levy to go up. So bonding is not an option. Uh, so, so we have to be self-sufficient on streets, which means we have to continue to capture as much sales tax as we can and spend it on streets. Now, where where I see sustainability issues is when I look at the the, the causes of, of of expenditures in the general fund that rise, such as fire, parks, police, code enforcement, things like that. The more money I spend on these endeavors, the less we can spend on streets because it all comes from the same pot of money. Meanwhile, on the on the on the uh, gasoline tax because it's not indexed to inflation. In 1991, we received the equivalent of 600 and some thousand dollars for 100 miles of streets. Now we have 130 miles of streets, and we receive about 500 thousand dollars. So proportionally, the money just keeps getting getting lower every year. So it, it's just a matter of time. You know, you you talk a lot about the 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 experiment that of suburban growth that everybody did at once, and there was no test case. Just everybody did it at once. To me, that's how, how a lot of people get, a lot of cities get in, in the situation with their streets because it all happened at once and all this infrastructure gets built. And when it's new, it doesn't take much to take care of it. And then now all of a sudden you wake up and you have bills you have to pay. We have in Hayes essentially a day of reckoning just in terms of the roads and streets. If we just say focus on that, you'll reach the point where things will be falling apart, like clearly bad and you don't have the money to fix them. And that's kind of built into the math. Is that a is that a fair statement? I hope we never reach that point. I'm doing my best to to keep us from 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 reaching that point. I think if if we handle our finances correctly, we won't reach that point. And and this is one of the this is one of the things that makes our strong towns discussion so hard. It's easy to let things fall apart and then point to the obvious elephant in the room and say we've got to fix this. I worked in Missouri. Missouri has a taxpayer bill of rights called the Hancock Amendment, and it requires essentially a, a four-seventh majority vote for any sort of public debt offering or increase in sales tax or things like that. Um, and so in Missouri, it's extremely hard to be proactive. And so communities, one, they had to get creative with their financing, but two, a lot of times they just have to let things fall apart before people can get on board with fixing it. But we, we know it's cheaper to maintain than it is to, to, to rebuild. We're having the discussion far enough out. We haven't driven off the cliff yet, but it also is what makes the discussion hard because we haven't driven off the cliff. I can point to what's going to happen, but it, it, it's hard to get people on board with that pending crisis harder than it is if you're experiencing the crisis. So. In, in, in my perfect world, we're going to pay attention to general fund expenditures, and we're going to do our best to pay attention to the costs that are imposed on us by new types of development so we can keep capturing as much sales tax money as possible and keep spending that on streets. And we're going to do a good enough job of continuing to grow in the retail sector and leveraging our position as, a, as an economic hub that we can hopefully continue to grow our our, our our retail revenues, our sales tax revenues, and funnel that money towards streets. We're reaching a point where we're doing a really good job of 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 we 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 address the backlog, and we're doing a really good job of keeping up on the maintenance side. Uh, the problem is, is we still have a lot of streets that are just going to have to be rebuilt, and and those are you know you don't want to throw good money after bad and go in and concrete street. You don't want to spend 
thousands of, of man hours and labor and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars replacing a few panels, you know, if you're going to have to come back in in five years and replace it. So you just kind of have to let it go until you get the money to replace it. That's where the problem will be if we aren't successful in, in, in digging our way out of the hole. I'm trying to get a little bit at that cultural problem. Because it, it seems to me like you, you've described very clearly to me something that I see all over the place, which is intelligent people trying to deal with this problem and communities having a dialogue where they say, yep, yep, I, I hear you, Toby. This makes a lot of sense. I'm with you. Let's be prudent people, but not my street. <laughs> you know, I, I pay taxes, not my street. I'm with you. I want to do this, but I don't want my taxes to go up. I'm just wondering at, at what point, because I mean, you, you said we should be spending about three million a year on roads. We're spending about half a million, you know, roughly. Um, no, we, uh, look, let me clarify, Chuck. We have regular revenues for a half a million. Oh, okay. Um, when okay. you look in our past 10 years via Bank of KDOT and money we've, um, you know, we're, we're spending over two million a year. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, but, you know, I know that that isn't going to last forever unless we actually take strategic measures to make sure it, it's able to last. Right. So you're trying to bend the curve more towards making it work long term, but in the short term, you're patching it together and, and finding money where you can. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's easy if you have a dedicated revenue to say, don't touch that. You know, if you have, if we had, let's say we had $3 million in regular revenues dedicated towards streets, it's easy to draw that line of demarcation and say, we're not crossing that. That goes to streets. Don't, well, like the state of Kansas, don't get into KDOT to use it to fund your general operations. But we don't have that because essentially our money is coming in to the general fund that can be used for general operations that we're funneling towards streets to help fund the shortfall. Now, I perfectly accept that streets are a general liability. We don't have a street utility. So it is a general liability, but it's harder to make that calculus when you're looking at um, a, a, a new park or a new fire station or added police officers or something like that. It's harder to draw that line saying this is going to take away from you, from your street. Let me throw this at you. I have a deep amount of respect for the fact that this is not a theoretical exercise for you. <laughs> you're, you're living this and you're making it work. And, and quite frankly, I would never question anything that you're doing or, or anyone like in your position who actually has to make things work. I, I want to throw a theoretical notion at you and see what your reaction would be from a, you know, a, a practical perspective. A lot of this to me seems like it is a, a feedback thing. You referenced, you know, the federal spending and the military base. I think that those are natural human reactions, right? I don't want the military base closed in my town. I do want federal spending curtailed, but, but not here. And, you know, when you add that up in aggregate, everybody wants everything, but no one wants to pay for it. And essentially that in a large sense is the government we've created in a theoretical standpoint. There's this notion that if we just create more feedback signals, you know, you actually have to pay for your, your own road. The costs are going to be more closely associated with the decisions that you make that somehow that would, that would change things. And for me, I, I've long argued that, you know, we shouldn't have the bank of KDOT. Like we shouldn't have these kind of slush funds where money goes from the federal government to the local government and the state government to local government, because it does create these kind of crazy expectations. You are trying to make things work. And I guess I'm, I'm asking in a very roundabout way, 
is there a role for, say, the state of Kansas in this? Or would the state of Kansas trying to help out here actually do more long-term harm than good? I think it'll do more long-term harm than good. I remember listening to one of your podcasts where you were talking about Brainerd. Maybe it wasn't Brainerd. Maybe it was the, the city that was the probably... city in northern Minnesota that was doing the, the lakefront development thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, one of the conversations in the podcast, you, you mentioned something about the amount of money of their general revenues, which comes directly from state aid. Oh yeah, no. And my hometown is that too. Pause. Yeah, it's it's a huge percentage. It's just really scary. Yeah. Yeah, it gave me pause because now you don't have any control of your destiny. None. Your right. your your you know for us it'd be uh, we would be beholden to uh, you know 145 legislators in, in Topeka and wow I I don't think I would want that. So personally, I like the idea of local local control. What we're finding is sometimes it's hard to, to have local control. When we started doing the, the, the um, policy type explorations, one of the things we looked at is, okay, if, if certain types of development are generating certain types of costs, can we make them pay those costs? And we kind of hit brick walls every time we turn. You know, we, we, we aren't allowed to do um, excise taxes and impact fees in, in Kansas anymore. Those have been deemed unconstitutional used to be able to. We can't do that anymore. If if we have a development in an area that we know is going to necessitate uh, an arterial getting rebuilt at some point in the future, because of our slow growth, we can't make the property owners pre-annexation sign on to a, uh, a future benefit district where they would agree to be special assessed proportionally for the cost of that because of the way that the laws are written now where you have to know the cost before you can determine that, or you have to have an idea of the cost because that arterial may be developed in two years. It may be developed in 50 years. It just depends on how you grow. And so, you know, a, a lot of the avenues we looked down, we kind of got thwarted because of state laws. And I, I would rather the state not get involved and let us kind of control our own destiny here. I think that's what will be successful is local solutions to local problems. Let me ask you something along those lines, because I, I, I'm not an expert on Kansas tax policy. From the conversations I've had with you and, and others, it, it seems like it's very similar to what I've seen in other states where the state government has essentially said at the local level, you guys are not very bright we don't really trust you to do the right thing. And so we're going to give you a very narrow and limited set of things that you're going to be able to do. And at the state level, we're going to have a lot of complexity. So we'll have a very complex, thick tax code with all these different rules and regulations and loopholes. But at, at the local level, no, you've got, you know, in your case, the sales tax. Maybe you can have a property tax. Here's the process you go through. But they're very coarse and, and blunt instruments. What would your reaction be to an approach that inverted that? It essentially said, at the state level, we're going to have, you know, very simple kind of taxation policy. But at the local level, we're going to essentially allow local governments to craft their own tax and regulatory approach in a way that fits best with the type of community they have. What would your reaction to that be? It's an interesting question because as, as a manager in Kansas, I feel lucky because, A, we have home rule, which a lot of states don't. Um, you know, a lot of states are statutory cities, and cities can only do what the state statutes tell them they can do. 
or they can't do. So so we have home rule in Kansas, and, and we do have more localized control. And we actually do um, have the ability to, to utilize our sales taxes in an economic manner if we so choose, which a lot of states don't. And And so I already feel blessed to be a part of that. Now, there are some... There are some some initiatives in Topeka trying to limit or what we can do. Um, some of the I, I call them the magic bean people. You know, they want to pass this this magic bean legislation and never have to worry about government again. And so, you know, I want to put these property tax lids in and things like that with these just completely arbitrary matrix and numbers that, that you know to, to to govern the outcomes. But if, if I had to ask for for one thing, and whether it would work or not, I don't know because it, it's inherently difficult. But I would like the ability to actually control at the local level, or at least have the discussion at the local level, about taxing land at a higher value than dwellings. And I know you're an advocate of this, too. And, and this has worked successfully in places, and it's been you know, implemented in other places with less than stellar results. But it drives me crazy to see a parcel of property that has water, sewer, street infrastructure, that the owner is, is is asking an astronomical amount for, because say it's prime retail uh, or prime industrial area, and they're paying you know forty dollars a year in taxes. Um, meanwhile, you know uh, somebody that's a, that's a homeowner is paying three thousand a year in taxes or four thousand a year in taxes, and to me that drives me crazy. So if that's the one thing I could ask for, it would be let us have the ability at the local level to determine how how taxes are apportioned and. and and, and, and what the, the, the different levies are for different types of applications. I, I see a lot of states and a lot of localities, you know, you mentioned Missouri, Missouri's one that f- flirted with uh, increased sales taxes to pay for transportation. It seems to me like the sales tax is a very seductive tax because it's small. You, you don't notice it much. It generates a lot of revenue. How distorting in your experience, is the sales tax and, and how much of, uh, you know, the the frustration of, of trying to do something rational has the sales tax been for you or, or, or the opposite? I mean, maybe you love the sales tax, but I I sense that it's it's not necessarily the, the, the ideal situation. Well, I, I like the sales tax because it leverages our position. We are a regional shopping center. And we have people that come to our city and and they use our streets and they use our police department, our fire department, our services. And so, hey, let them help pay for it. I think it's great. Um, a lot of the amenities we're putting out here are funded with, with sales tax. So it doesn't just help the residents here. It helps everybody here. I think we're lucky in the fact that our sales tax revenues are fairly stable. That's the one big wild card with sales taxes. They can be extremely volatile. We have all the measures in place. When they switch to... When they gave up the general fund levy and switched to a sales tax, that happened the year before I came here. They did right, and they put all of the measures in place to address the volatility issues. We have a very large rainy day fund. We keep rather large unreserved fund balances. I mean, we have all the corrective measures in place if we ever get into that volatile situation. Uh, but the reality is our sales taxes aren't, haven't been that volatile. They could be in the future, but they haven't been that volatile. To me, it, it, it's a good utilization of leverage in our position. But on the other hand, I fully get the argument that sales taxes are kind of a regressive tax. You know, they, they impact the, the, the poor more than the, the, the wealthy. And then, every you know, if everybody comes to the trough, the, the state has enacted some significant 
income tax cuts, uh, not just for personal income taxes, but for business income taxes. And um, um, in, in fact, uh, a, a lot of LLCs don't even pay income taxes in Kansas because of uh, 2012 tax legislation that passed. When the state has had a couple shortfalls, they have used sales tax to uh, overcome those shortfalls. And so it, it's a different discussion when you can have your localized sales tax and the total rate is in the sixes. It's a lot different discussion when it's in the eights. And and so now it, it could be regressive. So I think the biggest the biggest fear I have is, and this is going to sound selfish, is too many people at the trough. Um, at some point, the you know it, it's just going to be too much. At some point, it is going to have a negative impact. You get sales taxes over, over nine and ten, and you're you're going to have some problems. You are an island in a sense. I mean, you you I do see the sales tax as being a, a huge advantage for you because you essentially capture this broad, broad market. I'm going to ask a couple of questions about the sales tax. Again, I'm getting a little theoretical, but I, I want you to, to kind of postulate a little bit here. The sales tax works for Hayes, but you're surrounded by other cities that the sales tax doesn't work for uh, because, you know, those sales are going to Hayes. What, what impact does that have on the region? I don't expect you to you know, say, well, here, we'll, we'll give you some of our revenue. Cause I, I realize that that's not, you know, that doesn't make a lot of financial sense for you. And these are people who largely use Hayes's services because you are the regional center, but what does it do to the rest of the region to have a system so dominated by sales tax? Uh, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because I, I haven't heard even really anecdotally, I haven't heard any issues of, you know, people coming from, from somewhere else to shop here and, and being upset with the taxes or anything like that. Regionally, it's an interesting dynamic that the position we're in being a regional shopping hub, because we are wholly dependent on, on, on not only the travelers that go through on I-70, but, but the, the people that live in the towns around us, the Lacrosses and the Plainvilles and Ellis's and Victoria's and Russell's and, and you know, cities that, that don't have a Home Depot and, and, and they don't have a Walmart and, and, you know, maybe some of the major chain restaurants or the, the big grocery stores. Um, so we know they come here to shop. We're, we're dependent on them, but, but, but we also want to see those communities survive. And it's, so it's an interesting interplay. I'm always happy when I see a, a uh, you know a Dollar General open up in Plainville or Russell or something. That's good because it keeps that community alive. Because we need that community. We just need. But we also, I'm not, I, I fully understand. We also need those people to come here and shop. It's an interesting interplay, and and we do pay attention to the population decline out here. Uh, if you look at at the Northwest Kansas as a quadrant, it reached its peak population in 1930. You know, it was homestead in the 1880s and 90s and reached its peak population with the 1930 census, and it's been declining ever since. Um, we had a built environment in the 20s that would rival the built environment we have now, except most of it was railroad environment. And, and uh, you know, essentially there's too many people settled on the high plains and the land wouldn't support, and the land's kind of been kicking them off ever since. You know, we are one of the, when you look at the counties that comprise northwest Kansas, Ellis County is the county that's been growing since 1930, and the rest of them have all been experiencing these population declines. Uh, so, you know, the, the, those cities we depend on, 
we understand there there could be some depopulating going on. We we could lose some of those customers, but a lot of those towns are playing to their strengths. Uh, they know maybe they can't compete with with the Home Depot, but they have affordable housing that we don't. Um, Hayes is a very healthy economy, and as a healthy economy with a, with a university, the housing prices are high. So we have a lot of communities around us that that, that are are doing very well from a housing standpoint. The housing stock is full. They're building new houses. Uh, people are happy to be living there, and there might be a little bit of a commute involved, but it's not that bad. I mentioned this to you, I think, the last time we talked, and I'm I'm going to ask it in this context in a little bit different way from from a, a kind of a Machiavellian standpoint. If you just looked at the numbers, it seems like the best thing for Hayes would be. To have people who lived outside the city, so all, all the expenses of maintaining their street and their sidewalk and their curb and providing them police and fire protection, all that would be somebody else's, but then have them shop in Hayes and the retail taxes would essentially accrue to the city. Is there any fear that you have or any downside that, that you see of a population that essentially realizes that or, or, or says, you know, cause you, you described, you know, a, a city where you still want residential growth because you look at that as being a, a plus. Is there a danger when it is no longer looked at as a plus? I think there is. I, I, I've thought about that a lot um, because like you, I, I, I think from just a pure logical economic standpoint, the best thing we could have is, development within 10 miles of us that handles the, the residential stuff. But as a community, and, and we are a, a traditional maintain, a traditional Main Street community, um, we're, we're sort of wholly contained. We have a lot of services here. We're a, a very diverse community. We have a lot of things going on. That's what I think you would lose if you have, if you have your residential growth all happen outside. I think that's what you lose. I, I don't want to turn into the the shopping spot on the road where everybody lives somewhere else. And I, I think if you live around major metro areas, you, you probably see this where you have suburbs that are where people live and suburbs where people shop. And there's kind of a clear demarcation. And I don't want that. I wouldn't want that to happen out here. I think it, in order to have a healthy community, you have to you have to encompass everything. It's just a matter of finding a way to do it efficiently where you're not imposing costs on future generations that they don't want imposed on them. I would agree that I, I think the real strength of Hayes is the community and the kind of cultural spirit that people have. I mean, just in the little bit of time that I, that I was there being able to talk to people, there's a, there's a sense of belonging to that place that, and, you know, quite frankly, you didn't grow up there. You've moved there, but I think, you know, there's a sense of if you're there, you want to be there. It's not a place that you wind up in by accident or, <laughs> you know, move because you're, you're using it as a bedroom community. I mean, the people that are there are pretty committed to the place. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. It, it's, it is a wonderful place. We have to be reliant out here, self-reliant. We don't have the, the symbiotic relationship with the, the neighbor community or the, the, the large city. You know, we are on our own little island out here, and we have to be resilient and resourceful and 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 we have to to take a localized approach to problem solving and and in a lot of a lot of matters you know we are different in a lot of ways than than a lot of other Kansas cities to me it's a testament to people here that the governing body the planning commission and a lot of our citizens that we're having this conversation that 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 me as a city manager and my staff 
can throw these things out that, that challenge assumptions and challenge beliefs and represent entire shifts in paradigms and not have a public outcry. And the response is, yeah, we get it. Let's let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. Now, we know that's going to be messy. And, and you know, there's going to be no clear path or plan, but, uh, but let's talk about it. Just a willingness to have that difficult discussion, to me, is a testament to the community. And, and it's just, it is a great place. I would end there, but I have one more question I want to ask you, and it has to deal with your staff. Anytime you get a group of professionals together, uh, especially in a place like yours where you've got a bunch of smart people, there's a lot of different ideas on how to do things and a lot of different, you know, a lot of deeply held beliefs. How hard or not has this been for your staff, and how do you see things continuing at the staff level to mature in the future, even when, you know, you may no longer be a, a part of leading that team. How, how do you see the future of Hayes from a staff, professional staff standpoint, kind of shaping up? Well, I, I don't think, I wouldn't categorize it as, as, as difficult, but we have to pay attention to the details going forward. And we have to keep our foot on the gas. At the at the staff level, you know, the, the further down you get at the staff level, the the less big picture you get, and the more technocrat you get, and and so it, it, it's it's very difficult for somebody who is in a in a very small window um, to ask them to step back and look at big picture uh, relationships. To me, that's my job, and the department has job is is to to try to draw us out, look at a big picture, have the discussion, and make the decisions, and and this doesn't just include staff. Sometimes it includes governing body members, planning commission members. I think too many people, when you think strong towns in Hayes, they're still waiting for the roadmap. They're still waiting for the punch list. They're still waiting for the strategic vision. When you were here, you met with, with me and my staff the, the day after you gave the curbside chat. And our, our assistant public works director, John Brown, who is very competent, very capable, he's a huge asset to the organization, he kind of challenged you and he said, okay, Chuck, I get it, but where's my plan? I need a plan. You know, he's an engineer by trade like you. So where's my plan? And you were saying there isn't any plan. You have to live it. And, and so I think that's what I'm dealing with now is I think there's people still waiting for the plan. They, they still want to be able to take an issue and say, let's compare it to the strong towns plan. Like we have the comprehensive plan. And I have to keep reminding them, you can't do that. Um, and that's where it kind of gets messy from a, from a staff standpoint, one can only control that which they can control, right? So if if we have a set of policies that we have to work within, let's take arterials, for example. Our development policy says the city at large will pay for arterials, and it's said that for a lot of years. There is no interest right now at the governing body level, and, and quite frankly, I haven't presented a better option to them because I can't find one. Uh, I'm still trying to find that magic beam, but I can't find it. If we have a policy that's been passed by the city commission that says all arterials should be paid for by the city at large, then I can't make a recommendation to deny a rezoning and a replat request because of the cost to arterial in the future. I don't have the policy authority to do that. That's where I think it's difficult because we have a policy boundary to work in, but we also have a duty at the staff level to give the governing body and the planning commission the correct information to make decisions. And that means we put fiscal notes on it. That means we talk about future anticipated costs. Even if it's a recommendation to approve or the policy allows, we have a duty to put those 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 
those tough things out there too. So that's all part of a, a well-rounded discussion. And, and that's where I have to continually challenge myself and challenge staff to, to make those decisions. We have to critically analyze all the situations. Some of our recommendations, and, and when, when we see a, an opportunity to make a policy recommendation, we have to do so with the reality that some of those recommendations will be approved and some won't. Sometimes we're going to make a very logical recommendation that's going to not get approved. We just have to deal with that. That's life. Move on. Don't pout about it. Move on. Do what's best. Move on to the next item and do the best you can. From from our standpoint, you know, Strong Towns isn't a, it's not a roadmap or a strategy. It's an attitude. It's a mindset. You know, it's a, it's about developing a big picture understanding and then transforming that into a hundred tactical little changes uh, to try to make us better. What we have to do is continue to focus on those types of changes, knowing that not everything is going to get adopted, knowing that we're not always going to make the best decision. The governing body is not always going to make the best decision in our minds, but we just have to keep progress moving forward. Toby Doherty, City of Hayes. I, I have to tell you, I, I, you know, have been doing this now, Strong Town stuff for a, a number of years, and it's, it's taken me out of the trenches uh, but my heart is with you. And, and when I hear you and, and, and people who are doing the work like you're doing, uh, it's inspiring to me and it, it's humbling to me. And I just want to thank you so much for all your efforts and all, all that you do. And, and really all the times where you bang your head against the wall, where someone like me can just talk theoretically and then go home at night. <laughs> you have to you have to make things work and that is a far far harder challenge than than anything that I have to do these days. So thanks for taking the time and and sharing with us and please keep in touch. All right, Chuck, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. You take care, Toby. Talk to you soon. Right. Bye-bye. Right, bye. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town just like Hayes, Kansas. Take care, everyone. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. 